You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. John Langan is the author of Mr. Gaunt and Other Uneasy Encounters, The Wide Carnivorous Skies and Other Monstrous Geographies, House of Windows. His new novel is The Fisherman. Thank you for joining me, John. Thanks very much for having me, Rick. John, this is a remarkable novel about the power of human emotions and you talk, the emotion that we are specifically focused on in this book is grief. It's a, it's really beautifully written. What made you decide to write about grief using the notions of the fantastic? Oh, well, thanks very much. I, um, I think that grief for, for some number of years now has been very much at the, at the heart of a lot of my creative process. And it, it may have something to do with the fact uh, of losing my my father when I was when I was 23, uh, rather suddenly and catastrophically. He went into the hospital for open heart surgery and and wound up developing complications. And he was in the hospital for a good couple of months. Um, uh, despite which, uh, neither myself nor my family was particularly prepared for for him not to make it out of the hospital and. I think that that exposed me to uh, the, the suddenness and the, the the shock of grief in a way that uh, that few other experiences uh, could have for me at, at that point. And when I got back to, to writing horror fiction in my late 20s, early 30s, I, I really believed that that for horror to work for the reader, to, to, to resonate with the reader, it has to be about something more than, than just, um, you know, as it were, the jump scare to, to speak, to, to use a cinematic metaphor. I felt that there really needed to be some kind of emotional weight to the story that was being told. Uh, and so I reached for grief, uh, which, uh, which just felt uh, closest at hand to me. Um, and of course, since horror deals so often with death uh, in, in one way or another, Grief seemed an, an obvious emotional choice. When I immerse myself in this book, I really love the voice of your protagonist. He's really an interesting fellow. Did you create him outside of the book and then start the book off in his voice? Or did his voice create the character? Uh, his voice created the character. I was. Um, I actually began the book thinking that it was going to be my fourth published story. Uh, when I came back to writing horror fiction and when I started to publish my horror fiction, I was extremely excited, but also extremely anxious. Uh, having published the first story, I thought, oh my God, <laughs> I'd like to publish a second. Will I be able to do that? And so I, I had a number of, I guess you might call them tricks. Um, I would only write one story a year at the beginning, and I, I figured I could come up with an, at least one idea in a year, and I could uh, I could write that over the the course of a year and polish that and get that into to shape for uh, to submit for publication, and the what would become the fisherman started off as the 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 fourth in in what was then uh, a series, and uh, my wife was uh, was pregnant at the time with uh, with our son. And I thought to myself, I'll just write this little story and I'll get this done before the baby comes. And then, you know, I'll be good for a little while after the baby comes. And the earlier stories, I should add that, that one other little trick that I'd had for writing uh, my first three stories was to think about them in relationship to stories that had come before and to writers that had come before. So my first couple of stories in particular, I was thinking a lot about Henry James. And my third story, I was thinking a little bit about John Barth. And um, and I it, it, mentally I called these things my studies in classic American literature, stealing the the title from uh, from D. H. Lawrence's uh, critical volume. And so I'm a, a big fan of Moby Dick, and I thought, oh, I'll do something with Melville. That'll be great. And um, <laughs> uh, and you know I'm not I don't <laughs> I don't believe in whaling, so I wasn't going to write about whaling. And I thought, oh yeah, fishing, I'll do that. 
Um, and I thought it would be sort of fun to have an opening line that, that rather than saying, uh, call me Ishmael, uh, would say something to the effect of, uh, don't call me Ishmael, don't call me this certain name. And as the character's voice, um, as, as the character's voice continued, um, it just, the, the novel just wrote itself. Um, it just, uh, um, it, it unfolded the, the, just almost effortlessly uh, in his voice until I came to the middle section of the book and then that character's voice, the, the you know, it's a sort of a novella within a novella almost, or, or a short novel within a short novel. And, and so that character's voice just emerged in the telling. Um, I wouldn't exactly say the book wrote itself, but there was very much the sense for me that, that these guys had their own voices. Having just got off a conversation with somebody about flow, I would imagine that flow was a big part of your creative process. What time do you write? I mean, do you get up and write? You know, I, uh, I try to get up in the morning. Um, and, and I have for a long, long time. And, and you know, I, I teach part-time at, at uh, the State University of New York at New Paltz. I, I teach intro to creative writing classes. And I'm forever telling my students, get up early in the morning and write. The reason is that your internal editor likes to sleep in. Uh, mine certainly does. And anyway, <laughs> my intern, if I get up at, you know, 6.30 or 7 in the morning, uh, which for me is late, is, is early, excuse me, my, uh, my internal editor says, forget it. He likes to sleep in till about noon so I can get a few hours of, of writing. And uh, interestingly, in the last couple of years, uh, I've tended to do that. Uh, the way my schedule has worked, I've just tended to write more late at night. Um, but the effect is the same. My internal editor likes to go to bed early. He's not really big on staying up past midnight. So if I can just kind of keep myself awake, then he goes to sleep and I can sit down and write. Uh, you, you mentioned, uh, Henry James, uh, earlier on and, but there's another James that comes, uh, to mind, uh, also, uh, MR James. And also too, I was, as I was looking at the opening of your book, uh, uh, Aikman, Robert Aikman, who wrote what he called strange stories. And you have a right in your book. Some of my stories are what I'd call strange. I know only a few of these but they make you scratch your head and maybe give you a little shiver, which can be a pleasure in its own way. And I think that that's a nice, succinct uh, description of what any story should really do. Yeah, I, I, um, I've always been, when I tell a story to somebody, uh, when I relate, uh, you know, just an event that, that happened to me yesterday, I always tend to be a little too convoluted and too self-aware of, of what I'm doing. And I suppose that carries over to uh, to my narrators. And I, I do think um, uh, horror fiction has always been, the horror tradition has always been very aware, maybe more so than, than, than uh, other traditions even, of its antecedents. And yeah, M.R. James um, is a, a writer um, whom I came to a little bit later uh, after having read when I was younger, people like Stephen King and, and Peter Straub and been powerfully influenced by them. Um, later on, I, I would pick up Penguin, um, put out a, a two-volume two collection of, of James's stories. And I sat down one, uh, one summer, I think it was, and just, just burned through those and, and was kind of astonished, to be quite honest, because James, M.R. James gets tagged with a, a couple of stories, I think. His, you know, they're sort of his typical stories, maybe, oh, whistle and I'll come to you, my lad. Um, or uh, uh, with, with the sort of sheet, go the, the literal ghost that's a sheet or the sheet that's a ghost, uh, and maybe um, casting the runes or something. But when you read his, uh, when you read his collected stories, it, there's an amazing variety of, of approaches to uh, the horror story. Um, he, I guess he would have called it the ghost story, but as so many commentators have said, there aren't really a lot of ghosts in his stories. There were things in his stories, uh, things that have have uh, have lasted, I, I suppose, or held on uh, to, to this plane. And uh, Aikman is, a, is for me, um, a similar exemplar. Uh, I, I think of him as somebody who is, is constantly asking himself, how can how can you do this? How can you tell this uh, this particular kind of story I want to tell? What's a new way to, to do this? And I really aspire to that. It was what I admired um, 
when I was, and I still admire actually, but when I was younger, it was what really drew me to Peter Straub and, and what continues to draw me to Straub is that sense that, that here's a guy who just is not satisfied to just do the same old, same old thing, but wants to do something new. And so those, uh, those three writers, um, as well as contemporaries, like you know, someone like Laird Barron, who who just keeps mixing it up uh, with with each collection, they've really been very important to me as as, as sort of guiding stars. You know, I, I think one of the things that struck me in this book is how powerfully you use the medium of story, how much it influences your writing. We have, as you mentioned, a novel within this. A novel, which is essentially the story—a story that someone tells—and I think you really nail early on again the import of story itself. You say, "I doubt there's such a thing as transformation waiting. There's only transmission, and that's what storytelling is all about." Yeah, I, I think that we we live, uh, and and I'm far from original in saying this that we live story-shaped lives. Um, we, uh, um, I like that. That's really, that's a smart well, way of putting it. I think that, you know, I, um, when I was younger, um, I read a lot of the moderns and, you know, you have the sense when you're reading the moderns, or you think about E.M. Forrester saying the novel tells a story. Oh dear. Um, that the, the moderns are really frustrated with the fact that the novel tells a story and, and they, they want to get away from it, but they keep coming back to it. And I, I almost think that what the, what the postmoderns do in a lot of ways, this is to make vast generalizations, um, is to rediscover story and to, to you know, people like Calvino say, um, who really embrace story and, and, and John Barth ultimately moves in that direction to embracing story and the delights of story. And obviously it's one of the things that um, the, the fantastic genres can, can really give us is these wonderful narratives and these, um, these terrific narratives and, and narrative ways, uh, frames and, and um, how would you put it, symbolic ways of understanding our, our experience and, and, and meditating on our, our experience. So yeah, transmission. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think too uh, that um, one element of story that you use really well is just beautiful beautiful prose and this is your character talking so uh and, and you have a variety of characters so they have kind of, you know different voices at everyone when you're mapping out the the characters do you have to like write one character one day and then come back to a different character uh, on a different session with a different character or are you able to just jump from one one mind to the other like some kind of uh nefarious science fiction parasite <laughs> nefarious that's going to be the, the the blurb on my next book you know and uh, john langan is a nefarious <laughs> science fiction parasite um i do actually like that parasite i do jump from character to character um i i tend just to hear their voices as i'm as i'm writing and and i i think i think sometimes that their voices emerge you know, one character is is speaking, and the next character to to speak, I, I almost think it emerges as a kind of you know response to that character. So, um, and in some mm -hmm. way that the language or, or the the style of their speech um, is not just going to be the you know it can't be the same, I, I guess. And so, um, and and I you know, and if there's a third character, then that character has to speak in a different way. And I I just knocked over my mic and my enthusiasm. Um, it's this human form. I'm not used to it. Um, but <laughs> this is the brain parasite speaking. Um, but um, yeah, no, I, I, I think that um, I've always loved novels in, in which you, you get a distinctive sense of the characters' voices. Uh, you know, Stephen King does this. Faulkner does this. Uh, Dickens does this. Uh, even James actually does it much more. Henry James, I mean, does it much more than, than I think he gets credit for. And and so I, I think I, I aspire to that in, in my own work, trying to get these characters to to take on their own their own voices so, so that the reader really has the sense that it's not just me with a bunch of hand puppets, but that there are actually real people speaking.
no, I had no thought of you, Mr. Langan, as I read this. I was just immersed in, in the story of Dan and Abe. I mean, very powerful. Sorry, you weren't even well, that's in the good. picture. No, that's good. I, um, I didn't I didn't want to be yeah. there. Uh, the horror genre, I think, in many ways, it kind of gets a conflated with the thriller genre because sometimes they try to do similar things. This is this book, while it's thrilling in its writing, I don't think it's a thriller uh, by virtue of the fact, for one thing, there's not enough white space on the pages. Uh, so talk about, uh, I think that's because you spend quite a bit of time describing both the characters' lives and, you know, the the landscapes. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Abe's life and, you know, your exploration of his tragedy, which I think is, uh, you do something very nice there. It's a very nuanced, um, very careful, you give us enough detail and give us enough emotion and then draw back before you plunge into any kind of precipice of melodrama. And I think that that's, it's a really, really finely turned piece of writing. So talk about creating just the tragedy that sets the whole uh, novel in motion. Well, I, I was thinking about Abe's tragedy as, as being, um, in a sense, uh, multifold. There's there's the, the immediate and obvious tragedy of him losing his wife shortly after they're they're married and um you know it, it occurs to me that that when i when i started writing this my my wife and i hadn't been married too terribly long and so there was probably some anxiety uh, uh myself i was i was working out uh in uh, or tapping into and in, uh, in in writing this um and uh it occurs to me you know a a, a dear friend of mine Shortly before my wife and I got married, he lost his uh, he lost his wife very suddenly and horrifyingly. And it's never occurred to me before, but I, I do wonder if maybe that was in the back of my mind somehow. Um, you know, it was like two months before before Fiona and I got married, and and I do wonder if that uh, if that in in some subconscious way played into to uh, to what I was I, I was doing. But I. Um, I, I, it sounds terrible to say I liked the idea of, of a damaged character, but but kind of, you know, I, I wanted a character who had um, who had gone through a, a real and troubling and, and difficult experience, and you know, in in part, I, I wanted to set up this I this this uh, conceit that that he would have gone fishing as almost this this. Uh, seemingly random, but but almost predestined or 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 magical cure uh, to to this terrible grief. Um, so I, you know, I did have to work backwards, I suppose, a little bit and ask myself, well, you know, what happened with his grief? How how um, uh, what were the parameters of of his marriage and and what happened to uh, um, to, to to his wife? What what happened to to, to cause the, the terrible descent that would that would you know the, the the wreckage of his life what happened to wreck his life let's say that to such a degree that that he would need this this magic cure and and so um, that led to me thinking a, a lot about about well what happened and what was their marriage like what was their relationship like and it 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 kind of spun out of um, I guess in a way narrative necessity but then it it, it took on a life of its own you know it, it became this this way of giving him a, a depth of experience as a, as a character. Um, but as, as you say, I didn't want to overdo it um, in, in part because I wanted to get to the rest of the story. I mean, I was, I was, there was a sort of a pragmatic um, reason for, for me not to spend too, too long on, um, on his grief. And I, I needed him to, to be grieving, but also to, to, to find a way out of his grief. Um, and I think, um, um, yeah, I, I think that was was sort of what was what was going on in in my mind, and and you know that was also I was also tapping into um, my my. It's funny I mentioning my dad, but I was mentioning uh, uh, you know my father had been at IBM um, in the late uh, the early nineties, late eighties, early nineties when the company was sort of imploding in, in itself, and and my dad had had been with IBM. For you know, forever. And when we were kids, we used to bust his chops about it. Oh, it's a monopoly, you know, and he would defend that company, man. He was loyal to that company. 
Um, and at a time when increasingly the company was not loyal to him and, and uh, nor to a lot of people of his generation. And so I think that was the other thing that I wanted to, to tap into was this to, to give you this guy who's his his wife um, has has died. But but also his his job that that part of his life is also under a lot of pressure as uh, as well. I, I think it's it's really beautifully written. It's very engrossing. Uh, are you a fisherman? Do you fish? I do not in the slightest. Um, it's ironic that I, I started writing this um, and then my younger son actually became, has become quite the accomplished fisherman, uh, just on his own with no help from me. Um, he had been watching uh, the TV show River Monsters, uh, Jeremy Wade's uh, uh, show. Uh, I used to love yeah, that no, show. Yeah, we, we watched it together, and I really enjoyed it. Wade is a very engaging uh, narrator and, and figure, you know? And, and, mm -hmm. and so um, so we just watched it, really, because we used to watch shows on the Discovery Channel or Animal Planet, whichever. I think it was Animal Planet it was on or is on. And uh, one day my son just said, I want to go fishing. And I said, all right, I'll take you. So I bought him a cheap rod at Walmart because I thought, well, I don't want to plunk down hundreds and hundreds of dollars if – if he's going to freak out the first time he sees, you know, a fish. Um, and I did warn him, you're not going to catch a river monster you know, right off the bat. But, <laughs> but, um, but the first fish he caught, that was it. He was, he had just, just stumbled into his life's passion. Um, but what it did mean was that when it came time to, when the book uh, was, was finally done and had been accepted for publication by, uh, by word horde, um, I did make a pass through it. And I had a, a number of sections where I, I fact-checked them with my son. And I, I said, okay, how does this sound? And he would either say, oh, you got that right. Or he would say, no, 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 you would never use, you know, lures, you would use worms or, or vice versa. So, so I gave him a, um, a little bit of credit in the acknowledgements because without, uh, without him, fishermen all over the world would be scandalized by what I've written. Yeah. <laughs> I think they they still will be, but uh, more yeah, more terrorized. So, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, um. This book, uh, talk about uh, creating Dan, and you know, I you talk, mentioned IBM. You do a great job of creating. I think you know the environment of the last gasp of American business when it was just beginning to realize they didn't have to give a flying anything about their workers yeah i i um uh, okay so part of what happened with dan was was uh, again you know sort of narrative necessity that when i realized oh you're doing a riff on moby dick i needed my ahab figure and i didn't mm. you know the ahab figure wasn't going to be uh, wasn't going to be abe and i thought okay so you know i, I need somebody else and 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 I, I had the idea that, okay, these guys are going to go fishing together and they're going to be united by a loss. And so I, I gave Dan this this vastly more horrific loss of, of his entire family in this terrible car accident. Um, and I, I wanted, um, so, so I, I needed him to, um, to, to kind of fill that role. To, and I thought, okay, so he has this terrible experience. And, and then I started to think, you know, he has to be tormented by this experience um, in order for, for, him to to suggest to abe you know we need to go check out this this river the this 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 stream that we're going to find out later in the in the narrative is not such a good place he needs to have been pushed to to the limit in in a lot of ways and and although um he's he's a bright enough uh he's a bright enough guy that the the purges <laughs> that are happening at ibm um are, are not immediately affecting him. There's still, there's still a sense that, that he's not, his behavior caused by his grief though it is, um, is, is putting him in more jeopardy than it might have 10 years before or something like that. Uh, these two men become friends in grief. And I think that it interests me when I was reading this to, see their differing experiences of grief. Dan is fresher, raw, as you mentioned, he's more intense. And I think the real um, edge that separates the, the men is purpose or, or guilt in that for all that uh, Abe 
feels bad about Marie's, his wife's death, he really didn't do anything to cause it. Whereas uh, Dan has plenty of reason to, to feel bad, to feel guilt. So talk about exploring these different kinds of grief uh, in just in uh, a naturalistic sense, which is a good deal of whether where this book lives. Yeah, well, I was... Um... You know, I was raised um, in a very devoutly Catholic household. I went to 12 years of Catholic school. And um, I, I like to say that I know a lot about guilt. Um, and the, you know, <laughs> guilt is the gift that keeps on giving. I, I, used, to, uh, I used to debate with, with, uh, uh, when I was an undergrad with, uh, with my friends who were Jewish, which guilt was worse, Jewish guilt or Catholic guilt, you know, and... and I don't think we ever solved that uh, that thorny problem, but I, I think that that um, guilt is is a, a, a tremendous engine, and uh, both in in our own lives and and for a character's life, and I, I think particularly in trying to give a, a character compelling motivation, I think that that guilt um, offers a lot to the to the writer. Being able to to have a character, yeah, as as you said, who feels he is complicit in his family's death, um, in a way that that a psychologist might very well say to him, "No, you're not. Come on, don't beat yourself up." But uh, of course, were any of us to be in the situation that we were behind the wheel of the car when our family was killed, of course we would feel responsible. Um, it's it's it seems inevitable to me. Um, and so that seemed really, really fertile ground for, for me, for, uh, for building his character and, and for, or, or fertile ground in which to root his, his subsequent actions in the, in the text. I always feel that, that uh, any kind of good novel, but especially a, a, a horror novel or a fantastical novel, um, really benefits from, from an, uh, really benefits from a, a um, what we, how would you put it? Like a like a strong grounding in the character's psychology. If you um, if you can have the whatever your characters are doing really come out of who they are, and if you can complicate things uh, for the character um, emotionally and psychologically by by making them. I don't want exactly want to say the walking wounded, but but certainly by by making them conflicted. Then I, I think right the, the potential for your narrative to become that much deeper is is tremendous. Well, I think that you hit absolutely hit the nail on the head because um, once you've created characters in this situation with the with the psychological uh, you know uh, perfection that these characters they seem very very real. Um, it enhances the horror and then the feedback, the, the elements of the fantastic feedback and make the the emotions seem all that more poignant. And, and I mentioned this word psychology. It just makes me wonder, was there a bit of research you did in terms of the grief and the psychology of the characters in the book? Or did that just come from uh, uh, making stuff up? Um, you know, I want to say it just came from making stuff up, but but it also came from uh, my my youngest sister is uh, is a social worker. And we've had many conversations over the years uh, about about matters of grief and and uh, and I think like everybody else, uh, I'm as interested in psychology as as the next layperson. Um, and I've also had this uh, uh, for years now, this real fascination with uh, with Freud and, and with Freud's writings. Even though I think most of his ideas at this point, um, certainly a lot of his physiological ideas, have been discredited. I think the, the the fundamental insight he has into the into the way that our grief, um, our our traumas, basically continue to uh, affect our lives that that just seems to me utterly profound and and uh, one of those things that that is uh, so true it seems obvious and we how could we never have have known this how could we not always have known this um, so yeah I, I, it's. It was invented, but it was invented out of uh, out of a, a pretty lengthy or, or pretty deep context, I suppose. I find it interesting that you mentioned Freud because, uh, to me, Freud seems that while his contributions uh, ultimately as a scientist may prove to be um, disproved, the 
his contributions as a writer, he was a really quite a, a great yeah. writer. I mean, he knew how to tell a story and how to com- write a, a convincing yeah, argument. There's, there's, you know, it's funny because I, I, I want, I think about Freud and Jung as these two, you know, poles of, of early psychology. And I think Jung is super cool. I love the idea of, of the, uh, the collective unconscious. And I love the idea that, that the personality has all these different mythic archetypes in it and, and what have you. Um, but there's a part of me that just thinks that's too cool and too pretty to be the truth. And when I think about Freud saying, nah, it's all about Eros and Thanatos. It's all about sex and death. And they're all kind of wrapped up in one another. And it's a whole big unpleasant package. There's a part of me that just <laughs> that, that feels very much like, yeah, that's probably the case. That's the case. Uh, any good novel of the fantastic includes some imaginative elements. And I have to say that you do outstanding work here. Uh, is there any basis for the central uh, creation at, of this novel, The Fisherman? No, not uh, not especially. I um... <laughs> Yay! <laughs> <laughs> it's it feels real i'll tell you that it feels totally well, that's, real uh, i i that's a relief yeah well you know it's funny because i think back to um i always think about poe saying that that the successful story should uh or no it was actually it was lovecraft who said that the successful horror story should have a, the aspect of the of the hoax to it and poe of course was very interested in hoaxes and a number of of poe's uh, the very best stories, things like facts in the case of Ben Valdemar, were presented as as newspaper articles. They they were hoaxes, and so there there is a part of me that um, is always happy to be able to to do that, to be able to um, to put one over on people for for lack of a of a nicer way to uh, to phrase it. There were elements that I drew on um, the the great serpent um, that that shows up at the at the middle and then and, and then at the end of the narrative um was influenced in in part obviously by norse mythology and um and uh, jormagunda the the midgard serpent but mm-hmm. um honestly my um, at the time i was i was writing um my wife was was reading our son uh, rick riordan's um Cain chronicles books which are his uh, riordan's take on egyptian mythology and they mentioned uh, Apophis or Apep, the uh, this flint-headed serpent, who is this uh, this emblem of ultimate chaos. He just wants to eat the sun. He's not like Set, who's who's sort of evil and want, but evil but wants to rule. This is just something that just wants to consume everything, and and that made a really powerful impression on me. I I, I guess I saw the the continuity of the of that sort of serpent archetype. I guess the giant serpent dragon type of of thing. Um, so I always feel like I have to give Rick Riordan a, a shout out whenever I uh, whenever I mention this. But other than uh, other than that, yeah, the the rest of the stuff I, I just kind of put together um, on my own. I, well, it's it's remarkably uh, consistent. Um, this book has this novel within a novel in it. It really is a novel. <laughs> uh, and it's beautifully crafted, and the way you work your way into it and work your way out of it <clears throat> is really nice. Talk about uh, the decision to to put that big chunk of story in the middle of your story and uh, uh, some of the technical aspects of making sure everything gels as nicely as well, it does. Well, I, I didn't realize when I, when I started, when I got to that part of the narrative, I knew that there was going to be a story within the story. But I was honestly still thinking about the entire thing as maybe um, a, a long novelette, maybe a novella. And there came a point when I got into the to that middle story when I, I did realize, oh, this is going to be this is this is going to be something longer. This is going to be at least a short novel. And um, and I actually put the book aside for a while because I thought I'm not ready to write a novel. Um, ironically, I then sat down to write another story that became my first novel, House of Windows. So th- it seemed as if my, my, my psyche was just ready to write a novel. <laughs> just like you're going to write a novel whether you like it or, or not. But um, it's, I, I had, you know, from, from on and off from start to finish, I was working on the book for um, 
man, like 11 or 12 years. So I, I had a, a lot of time uh, to develop things and, and to, to do that, that tracking, as it were, to make sure that things in the surrounding narrative matched up to, to details uh, in the interior narrative. But I, I was aware um, that I was asking the reader to, to swallow a lot by, by giving them this big narrative um, in the middle so I tried to make that part of the novel to 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 have um, to have Abe, uh, our, our narrator, say, you know, I was told this story, and I I remember more of the story than I was told. So that the 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 hearing of the story becomes this sort of uncanny act in and of itself. Um, and you know, most readers of the um, of, of the novel so far have been pretty forgiving of, of that big chunk, of that that other novel in the middle. Um, a few um, a few people have said, "What is this doing here?" And you know, I want to say, "But I, but I, I told you, <laughs> I warned you that this was crazy." <laughs> but you know, for some people, it's just not going to work. So um, I just uh, I have to accept that. Uh I think for almost any reader who is interested in a story that's emotionally involving, really weird and and entirely disquieting, uh, that works fine. That's a very, very seriously uh, disturbing part of the narrative. There's one part where I think it's Rainier says, what's next? A witch in a gingerbread house, a handsome prince who's been changed into a beast, a little mermaid who wants to be a real girl. It is like a storybook. It's, it's like you fall into one of the stories we used to read you when you were a child. You don't understand everything, but you understand enough. And that knowledge, it twists things, doesn't it? Maybe you are afraid that this is madness. And... <laughs> I think that that uh, explains the appeal of the horror novel uh, quite yeah, handily. Yeah, and, and I think, honestly, um, I, I do feel so often our lives are outrageous. Um, you know, Tolstoy famously oh. says, God is a lousy novelist. Um, and I, I, I think that's true, <laughs> right? Because yeah. there were these outrageous coincidences that uh, that occur in our lives. There were these, these outrageous... Um, good things and bad things that happen to us and, and just weird things that happen to us that as a, as a, a quote unquote, a realist novel or um, a mimetic naturalist to borrow uh, Salman Rushdie's term. Um, if you were to try to get away with this stuff, you know, no one would believe it. Um, and, and, and the fantastical, I, I think whether, whether horror, fantasy, science fiction, I, I think it does allow you to get at that, to get at the, the way um, that, that reality itself uh, can seem fantastical. Um, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit what we think it's going to be or what it, or what it should be, I suppose. Uh, long ago, Karen Joy Fowler told me that in a world where the Terminator can become the governor of California, uh, Science fiction is mimetic. Yeah, fiction. well, I, I think I, I mean I. I um, <laughs> it's funny that that uh, the um, the Rushdie piece that I get that mimetic naturalism from. I want to say he's talking about uh, J.G. Ballard's work in that, uh, at least in part, and saying to the uh, words to the effect of, you know, Ballard is more realistic than realism at this point. That what Ballard is talking about. You know, I. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this book has a wonderful sense of what I call the other world journey, uh, where you start off in one place in our world and you end up in another. Uh, this is beautifully done by you. Uh, and this takes us to some of the landscapes you create. You live in New York. Do you hike through these landscapes Not that you write about? Not if I have any choice about? in the matter. Um, <laughs> no, I've... I've um, I, I do live in, in an extraordinarily beautiful part of the world. And, and you know, my uh, sometimes my wife and I will just look at each other when we're, we're driving from one place to another and just say, man, you know, how how lucky are we? I mean, it sounds so uh, uh, so uh, gosh, oh, shucks. Um, but it's true that that we um, where we are is, is just this astonishing landscape. Um, and and I will say that one of the interesting things about fishing with my uh, with my younger son 
is that in the process of taking him places to fish, I've discovered all these you know, sort of almost like little hidden parts of the, of the local landscape, places that I maybe drive past or, or have driven past for you know, decades at this point. And he says, well, let's try down here. And, and we, we, take a, we, we turn off onto a side road. We, we get out of the car and walk down a little slope. And suddenly we're beside this, this river, this, this, this portion of a river that I had no idea existed. And that was an experience that I, I certainly had had um, as I was revising the novel and, and, and writing the end of the novel. He was, David was already fishing. And, and so that, uh, that I, I think that definitely entered into the, the writing of the, of the book. But I've always been aware of, of um, Ulster County, where, where I live um, in, in New York, as just this lovely, lovely place. Um, it was where I went to college as, as an undergraduate. And I can remember the first time I drove out for my freshman orientation um, and seeing the, uh, the, the Shuangong Mountain uh, Ridge and, and just feeling this very powerful, primal sense that this is, this is my home. This is, this is my landscape. For all the wonderful landscapes and great characterizations you have, I, I will say that um, you write up some fantastic <laughs> monsters in this. There are, <laughs> and, and for a guy, monsters are important to me. This is a horror novel, after all. I do like to see some monsters in my horror novel, and they're really inventive and and creepy and creative. Uh, do you like draw pictures of these, or or do they just exist in your mind? I hope. And not, not certainly not somewhere in upstate New York, <laughs> flopping around on a on a beach somewhere. I can't tell you about you. <laughs> what makes you think they're here? Uh, no, I I <laughs> tend to. Um, I love monsters. Uh, I have always loved monsters. Um, I uh, when I was a kid, uh, I, I was a, <laughs> a a huge fan of of uh, giant monsters: Godzilla, King Kong. Uh, the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, uh, them, you know, all those giant monster movies. And um, I've always felt that, that um, as I've, as I've um, continued to write horror, as I came back to writing horror in my, in my late 20s, early 30s, and have continued to work in it, I, I really feel that, that, that monsters slash the monstrous are, that, that's re a really important part of, of horror. Um, I, I don't believe... I'm not one of those people who would say you can't have a horror narrative without a monster. You, you could. Um, but I, I love their extravagance. I love their, their just over-the-topness. And I, I guess they embody for me in a, in a lot of ways what we were talking about before. This sense that the world can just be this crazy place. And, and they, they symbolize that in, um, um, in, in this really visceral kind of, uh, kind of a way. And many still many of my favorite... Um, horror movies uh, of, of that and, and horror novels of, of the last few years have been monster stories have had great monsters in them I um, I tend to, the, the the monsters it's, it's an interesting process and in that the monsters tend to start off on the written page but a lot of times in the process of of writing of, you know while I'm writing a scene in a um, uh, in a story or, or in the in the case of the fisherman in the novel um, I will sketch them I will do little doodles and try to think to myself what have I what have I described what does this thing look like what is you know it, it's a way to sort of help me uh, well obviously visualize it in a in a different uh, in a different way and and a way to look at my description and judge my description and see if I need to tweak my description in any ways. Uh, I have to say that this is hands down the best H.P. Uh, Lovecraft influenced novel I've read in many many years. I can't, and I think that you do a great job of uh, using the Lovecraft technique of showing us a, a, a part of the whole and letting us imagine the rest and. That's a, a really tough thing to pull off because it's on one hand, if you show too little, the readers left feeling disappointed. If you show too much, they're left feeling, well, this is overwhelming and, and it's maybe, you know, too much. So uh, talk about uh, ratcheting your monster into the into the into the well, zone. I, you know, so when, to I, speak. Uh, when I was younger and I was uh, plunging into to horror fiction in my teens. Um, you know, this was when, uh, obviously, Stephen King, this is the 80s, right? 
so Stephen King is is doing a lot of terrific oh, yeah. work, um, and also Clive Barker was was um, just had just exploded on the on the scene, and I, I think that between Barker and King, and in, in particular, um, they would write these narratives that that were that, that, and probably in King's case, definitely getting this from from Lovecraft. Uh, Barker, I'm I'm less sure about what his antecedents are, maybe Joseph Conrad, but. But anyway, the, the stuff that they would write would be immensely suggestive. And so whether it was, um, in, in Barker's case, things like The Damnation Game or Weave World or The Hellbound Heart or Cabal, he had this terrific ability to just suggest uh, vast cosmologies lurking just to either side of the, of the narrative. And you were just getting a little peek at them. And the same thing with King. I, I think it was... Um, one of the things that was so wonderful for me when the when the Dark Tower, the first Dark Tower book, The Gunslinger, was published, um, what a fascinating book that was with its with its evocation of this used up world. And I just so remember seeing that I bought that at <clears throat> Change of Hobbit on uh, uh, when it was on Westwood Boulevard, and I just remember seeing this big pile of books by Stephen King and they had these kind of weird like critters monsters on the cover I said I have got to have that book and it was one yeah, of my favorite I, I Stephen that, King books I think, for many um, years I think certainly the 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 first um the first four of them first five of them even I, I I my my sense is is that everybody loves those I think the sixth and the seventh there's the opinion is a little bit more split but but regardless you know and, the, and then the new one when the, through the keyhole right but but he um same thing. He he was able. I mean, what I think is is even more remarkable about those, to be honest, was the way that he was able to put you in this other world and still suggest that there was there was just so much of this world you hadn't seen um, that uh, uh, you, you felt that, that it was this this immersive experience. It, it felt like it, it felt real, I, I suppose. And so, I really aspired um with the fishermen in, in particular i really aspired to to that technique to to find a way to to look at what uh, barker had done to look at what king had done and to to construct this narrative where you were going to get i you know some uh, a few over-the-top moments where you were uh you were the door was going to be opened and you were going to see something in front of you but what you were also going to see behind that behind what was in the door, the figure in the door, you were going to see bits of this whole landscape behind it that, that suggested a much a much wider context for, for what was confronting you. Um, I, I think that the, uh, the beauty of this book too is that um, when you bring us back to the real world, you by virtue of having undergone this incredible, wild, beautifully evocative otherworld journey, um, when we return to the real world, we return with all the fantastic information and all the implications and the unspoken and unspeakable implications of that landscape now quite thoroughly entwined with and informing all the great character building you've done before so that when you take us out, it, it's a, it's very powerful well, experience. I, I wanted, um, you know, I, I suppose I wanted this to mean something to the, to the, the character, um, to, to Abe in particular. Like, mm. like I, I felt that, you know, if you had this experience, it, it would change you, even if in, in a way you would still have to live your life. You, you would still have to go on, with daily experience, still to go to your job, um, because uh, because there were still bills to be paid, and and um, the people who were around you don't particularly. It's not that they don't care that you've had this experience, but it's that how could you tell them about this experience? Because of course they'd think you were crazy, and and so you have this this you've had this profound experience, but it's something that you can't really share with with anybody else. And and so it's it's changing you tremendously on the inside, but on the outside you still have to to carry on, as it were. And our readers will have to carry on waiting for your next book. Are you working on another novel or I have another a collection third of stories? Collection of short stories, uh, which is called Sephira and Other Betrayals, 
which I had planned to release uh, actually right around now. Um, and uh, what happened is I, I'd written um, uh, about half a dozen stories uh, roughly at the within about a year of one another. And when I was thinking about a third collection, I looked at these stories and I, I realized that all the stories dealt with betrayal in, in some way or another. And I thought, wow, that's the, that's the collection right there. And I had a novella that I had started writing um, uh, called Sephira, which, which had begun as a kind of a joke between my agent and me. When I was trying to sell my first novel, uh, House of Windows, nobody was biting. And at, at one point I said to my agent, oh, if I wrote a novel about a blankety-blank vampire hunter, they'd buy that. And without missing a beat, my agent said, no, no, it would have to be a succubus hunter. And, um, and, and you know, which is, of course, a terrible <laughs> idea, right? And, and um, I happened shortly after that, um, I was at an airport. I had to pick up some friends. Uh, their plane was incredibly delayed. And I had a notebook with me. And I started to write this story about this woman who's chasing this succubus across the, the country. And... Um, you know, it was just a five-finger exercise to kill some time. But the more I, I wrote, the, the sort of richer it became. So I thought to myself, okay, I'll write that. That'll be um, an original piece to go with this collection. What then happened was the fishermen um, started to do really well. And I thought, oh, do I really want to release the collection quite at the same moment? And I had another, I, I had another original story uh that I had thought to myself, I had wanted to include in the collection, but I, I just time-wise, I didn't think I would be able to do it. And I, I talked to Derek Hussey, who's my publisher at Hippocampus Press, who does my short, my, my story collections. Um, I, I talked to Derek and said, you know, can we wait? Can we push the, the release back? Maybe it'll say February of 2017, and then we can get these two original stories in, because I think thematically they'll bookend the collection in a, in a nice kind of way. Uh, so yeah, so that's how, and then my agent is like, okay, where's the next novel? Let's, let's, <laughs> enough, enough uh, monkeying around. <laughs> uh, so where is it? question. <laughs> so, ask my science fiction brain parasite <laughs> to come up with something. Um, I'm, I'm hoping, okay. um, I, I'm hoping to wrap up, um, a lot of, uh, story commitments, um, in the next uh, the next few months, and uh, I've already started. Uh, I've already started writing something. Um, so if I can have if I can get back to that in the spring and, and have it done this time next year, uh, that would be terrific. Um, so we shall see. You know, I am looking forward to it. I've been speaking with John Lang, and his new novel is The Fisherman. Thank you for joining me, John. Thanks very much for having me, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>